one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 330 for the week of Sunday, July 17th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. How you doing, Sawyer? Doing great, thank you. Welcome as well, Mark Rannerman. You know, Sawyer, I had a whole string of jokes that I was going to throw your way tonight, but all of a sudden I've lost them due to a change in... Uh, media event type plans for the weekend but that's okay i'll make do <laughs> well then i expect next week to be the corniest episode ever how's that could could be could be all right so then let's get things started currently with the current space shuttle mission which is the sts 135 space shuttle mission the final one ever of the space shuttle program which is currently underway which once again launched at 11.29 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time on July 8th. And Talking Space was there covering the launch, and we talked a little bit about the mission so far last time, but the mission has progressed even further since we spoke about it, and now that we're more awake and we have our voices back, let's get another update on STS-135. Just as we were coming out of pre-show, uh, uh, a wake-up call that the crew just got uh, about just a few minutes ago uh, from, I believe the music was, uh, correct me on the Sawyer, Keith Urban's uh, day, Days Go By. Yep. And the in, the entire JSC team sent that up and uh, some folks that were uh, uh, going ahead and, and uh, had, a, had really nothing to do tonight except go ahead and wake up a shuttle crew over at the Johnson Space Flight Center, got together in, a, in an auditorium and and gave them one heck of a, a rousing wake-up call. Oh, yeah, they were um, holding up signs and posters, and they even had the mission control thing that they normally have on one of the consoles. They were holding that up. Yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. So it, it, it actually uh, uh, gave uh, the folks over at JSC a, a, a chance to, to actually you know, to do more and to wake up the crew, which I thought was really, really neat. So I thought I'd, I'd hand that. I thought we'd, I'd go ahead and mention that. That was that was a neat uh, neat deal. Um, and in fact, all of their wake ups have been uh, accompanied by special messages by either NASA centers or by the people who sang the music. For example, Elton John and Beyonce, and there was even a song, I believe, and a message by Sir Paul McCartney. Right, right. The lone EVA that was done on this particular flight was performed on flight day five by two of the ISS crewmen. 
uh, Mike Fossum and Ron Garan. Both of them have uh, spacewalk experience and had w- worked together before, so this was not really a, a, a huge deal. But one of the prime missions uh, for this particular EVA was to remove a, uh, a failed ammonia pump uh, from where it was stored on uh, external stowage platform number two, just near the uh, the Quest airlock there. Um, went, then went ahead, removed that, and uh, placed that into Atlantis's cargo bay for return back to Earth. Um, and to just figure out exactly what went wrong with this pump, uh, this is the fa- this is the pump that it failed back on uh, July 31st of last year, and basically took out half of the uh, the ISS cooling. Uh, uh, the ISS cooling uh, apparatus on board, and they actually had to shut the, the bring the ISS down to almost like 50% capacity. Um, we also went ahead, uh, where the EVA also performed an installation of the uh, uh, robotic refueling mission experiment, which Sawyer, you and I had a good uh, uh, good uh, uh, introduction to when we were over at KSC, correct? Yes, we did. We had an entire presentation, and they also had the training model and all of the intricate pieces of what they affectionately called Rosie. And uh, it, it was really interesting. One thing that I was amazed by was I went up and I got to see how they have a wire that they need to cut at a certain point. Right. I couldn't see it from where I was sitting in the auditorium. And only when I got up to it and almost had it, you know, right in front of my eyes was I able to see such a tiny wire. And it's really small. It's about as thick as a paperclip if you were to unravel it into just a straight piece of wire yeah that was you know it, it's quite a quite a thing that that uh, pleasant little porcupine as a, as uh, one of the the tech technicians called and I, I don't recall who that was um, uh, has to do but uh, it, it's it's a really a quite a, a neat little little uh, box loaded with uh, uh, certain uh, valve fueling satellite so uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the Dexter arm will be very, very busy um, at some point playing with all of that. So it should actually be a good test bed to see if indeed um, this uh, uh, this will go ahead and work. Um, one of the other other duties uh, that uh, Garen and, uh, and Fossum had to perform again uh, was to uh, deploy a segment on the uh, materials uh, International Space Station Experiment Number Eight, or MISI, uh, which was installed during um, the STS-134 flight. Now, because that experiment is sort of near the uh, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or the or EMS, which, by the way, was also installed on 134, um, and the thermal covers on AMS are expected to uh, to need some time to air out once the experiment was installed. Um, the uh, the STS-134 team was asked not to expose this particular segment of the experiment until gases on the AMS cover had some time to uh, you know to go ahead and dissipate. That that time has passed, and uh, Ron Garin went ahead and installed a optical reflector materials experiment that was brought up on Endeavour's mid deck uh, um, during STS-134 into a socket on on the Missy 8 and. Uh, and so on. So that that uh, that worked out very well. Uh, the the uh, final EVA, I believe, tagged out at six hours thirty one minutes, just about a minute over what they expected. That brought to uh, to uh, 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 
to a, a grand total of 1,009 hours so far dedicated to ISS uh, maintenance. So uh, a lot of time has been spent uh, uh, doing all this stuff. One of the other duties on board uh, for uh, STS-135 was to go ahead and deliver about uh, a little over 9,000 pounds of cargo uh, to the ISS to make sure that it is situated uh, pretty much for the um, until commercial crew, I mean, until commercial cargo can go ahead and start sending up uh, material and so on. Uh, this will go ahead and, and give uh, the commercial folks some time to uh, make sure that they've got their act together and, and can go ahead and deliver cargo safely to the International Space Station. Um, Mark, where where are we with the uh, the, the multi-purpose uh, logistics module or Raffaello right now um, at this point? Looks like a wrap-up. Uh, I read in an update from not quite 24 hours ago that they were about 97% completed on that. Okay, that's good. And I believe um, if I'm reading the um, uh, the press kit correctly, um, we are probably going to go ahead and have the MPLM detached tomorrow because uh, I believe they're coming back Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, the 21st, correct? Yes, launch, uh, landing has been moved to the 21st, so it's now a 13-day right. mission instead of 12. And right. So I believe landing is scheduled for double-check me on this. It's 5:58 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time, I believe. Yeah, it's going. It, it is. It is scheduled for a, an interesting hour, unfortunately. And um, it turns out also that Atlantis, no matter when it lands. You know, now will be the will have been the last ever vehicle to land on runway three three during STS one thirty two. Wow! So no uh, matter where it goes, no other space shuttle will land on runway three three. Wow! That that so in other words, another another great distinction. Um, there's also going to be a very interesting game of capture the flag, as we found out when President Obama called up the uh, the crew. Um, I believe that happened back on um, on Friday. Um, the crew carried up a small American flag. It was one of 1,000 American flags that was carried up on uh, on Columbia on STS-1, and uh, these 1,000 flags were given out to to NASA individuals and contractors that distinguished themselves during the preparation. Uh, for flight for STS-1. Well, one of those flags was reflown uh, on Atlantis. And um, the crew is leaving that behind. And uh, the idea is that it will be retrieved by the next American crew to be launched from American soil to rendezvous at the International Space Station. So... Uh, no matter, I guess, who picks that up or what vehicle they fly, whether it be Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser or uh, SpaceX's uh, uh, Dragon or, or any of the other vehicles that are going to essentially be taxis up to the International Space Station, um, that team will go ahead and have the distinction of returning that flag back to U.S. soil. So that, that's going to be kind of neat to watch who, who, who is that going to be. Uh, once once Atlantis returns home, 
Um, there's some very other. There was some other neat things that happened uh, behind the scenes on STS-135. Mark, you want to go ahead and mention one of them? On July 9th, 2011, the 110th in a series of bouquets of roses arrived in Mission Control, and it's been sent by a family that uh, lives near Dallas, Texas, for 110 shuttle missions. The first one was the one that flew following Challenger, and their, uh, it's a family last name is Shelton, and their flowers have arrived in the Mission Control like clockwork, usually with a note of well wishes. And the note for this one is something to, for the history books, and it says, for the final mission, to our good friends at Mission Control and the crews of STS-135 and Expedition 28, what a warm sight, Atlantis, the first orbiter seen in person by the Sheltons during a surprise visit to the DFW airport. Every second of this mission is exciting, thrilling, sad, and poignant. The handprints and heart prints of so many touched every surface, every moment. Thank you all for sharing it all, the glory and the unspeakable pain, with a grateful nation, a grateful planet. Godspeed, Godspeed, Godspeeds, the Sheltons and the Murphys. And it always included a rose of a similar color for each astronaut in space during the mission, plus a single white rose in memory of astronauts who have lost their lives in NASA's exploration of space. Wow, that's... And what do you say after that? <laughs> just just something really, really touching. And uh, thank both both of those families for, uh, for doing that and, and carrying on the tradition, I hope. Uh, they'll go ahead and continue that tradition once uh, once crews resume. I can't believe 110 missions they did it for. That that's dedication. Yeah, that's that's also um, it's dedication. Yeah, but uh, I think too it's it's a form of thank you uh, to go ahead and and thank the the folks that work extraordinarily hard and give their their blood, sweat, and tears to each one of these flights and. Um, it's a salute to them, and uh, uh, you know, God bless those those folks for doing it all those years. And it's interesting. The uh, start of it was just spur of the moment. Uh, the Shelton said that he didn't decide to do this until the day that STS-26 was to land. Didn't know if he could get it done in time. Called information to find a florist near the space center. Asked the florist if they could deliver roses to Mission Control. At first, said they they said they couldn't. Then they said they would try but had no idea if they actually made it or not. Well, they did, and it's something that the folks at uh, Mission Control, I'm sure, look forward to, and they regard it as being a, uh, a special touch from outside. Well, uh, sorry, that was not exactly the only special touch from outside, if I'm, if I'm uh, not mistaken, correct? Correct. All of the teams, including the crew of Atlantis, got a little special gift from Mars. And by Mars, I, I, I don't mean the planet, I mean the candy company. Because the people at M&M's had created special custom M&M's just for the crew. They were in blue, red, and silver, and as they call them, candy-coated chocolates, even though they still have the M on them. And uh, some of them had uh, on the back of them either the image of the orbiter... The date of launch, July 8, 2011, and on the back of them, some of them also had 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. So that was interesting that they actually created some special M&Ms, because you can create custom M&Ms, but they did it especially for the crews. And those were given to those at the Launch Control Center, the Kennedy Space Center, 
Mission Control Center in Houston, as well as the astronauts, who also received ones personalized with their names. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Interesting to think of uh, of these being a part of space flight. And, of course, if you think back to 2004 and uh, Spaceship One, what did we see the astronaut uh, pilot uh, playing with during his moments of weightlessness? M&M's. That's true, and th- those have been sort of play toys as well for for a lot of uh, for a lot of crew as well. You always see somebody going ahead with a handful of M and M's, just sort of slowly letting them go, and just sort of watching them sort of dissipate all over all over the uh, all over the crew cabin. So you know, it, it, it's still kind of neat, kind of neat to see. Trivia question: Does anybody know the first mission that these quote candy coated chocolates ever flew on? Had to be one of the early flights. Um, don't recall it. The first one, STS-1. Really? It says huh. M&Ms have been eaten on the wing spacecraft since the STS-1 crew requested them on Shuttle Columbia when they lifted off on April 12, 1981. Well, I could have. Wow, I, I I really thought that maybe perhaps they might have made their way uh, uh, on another on on something earlier than STS-1, but I guess not. The first, well, since the space shuttle. In fact, there's even a poster that M&M's released at one point that it has, you know, two astronaut spacesuits and a third one designed for one of the M&M guys. And it says on and aboard the shuttle since 1981. Wow. Okay, that is, that is sweet. Isn't no that No pun neat? intended. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, they rarely, if ever, call them by M&M's. Again, they're still just candy-coated chocolates. And someone once told me a story of uh, they when they went to it was an astronaut event speaking, and they were talking about the candy coated chocolates that they ate, and they said that some of them still had it on it, some you know had the letters on it, some of them didn't, so they were called either E's or threes or W's rather than M and M's. But it's funny because they said that some of them, one person who worked at NASA in the back said that yeah they have somebody who licks all of the letters off of them before they go up. <laughs> Oh, boy, that's too much. I think we can move along to Dawn. I think so, too. And we're not talking about the Dawn landing of Space Shuttle Atlantis, which, again, is July 21st. And what we are talking about is the spacecraft called Dawn, which has successfully gone into orbit around the asteroid Vesta. Okay. Anybody that uh, wants to geek out on some hardware... A little bit of uh, solar system trivia and such. Stick with me for a few minutes. Uh, Dawn is a spacecraft that, uh, let's get an idea of the size of it. It's 5.4 feet by 4.2 feet by 5.8 feet. It has a high gain antenna, 5 feet in diameter. It has solar arrays that are 64 feet, 9 inches across when deployed. Dawn's weight is uh, 2,684 pounds. The uh, solar panels, depending on distance from the sun, can generate more than 10 kilowatts of electricity, which is a pretty good amount of power. Uh, Each wing weighs about 139 pounds, and this is something I relate to. Power storage is via a 35-amp-hour rechargeable nickel-hydrogen battery. And 35-amp-hours, in terms of which I'm not used to nickel-hydrogen, I'm used to sealed lead acid and and more conventional-type batteries, but a 35-amp-hour battery, if it had a handle on it, you could pick it up and carry it out and put it in your car. I mean, it's not particularly light, but you could grab it with one hand and, and manage it. 
uh, on Dawn, the spacecraft itself, it has three thrusters. They are ion thrusters that use xenon propellant. The amount of fuel at the start of their approach to uh, at the start of the Vesta approach is 417 pounds. They've used a little over 500 pounds of xenon propellant in uh, in making it from launch in September of 2007 to this approach phase that they've been in recently to Vesta. Now, uh, the arrival, as we mentioned, was today, but they have to estimate it because it depends on what the actual time of capture by Vesta's gravity is. Uh, you know, Vesta's not real big. How big is it, you say? Well, the uh, asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter contains a lot of asteroids, among which is Vesta and Ceres, two of the largest surviving protoplanets. They almost became planets, but didn't quite make it. There's uh, rocky bodies like the moon, Earth, and other asteroids. Ceres is more similar to Jupiter's moon or to Europa or Saturn's moon Titan than the other asteroids. Their special qualities are produced by processes that worked during the earliest days of our solar system's history, and that's why this is interesting to have a satellite visit Vesta and Ceres later. Um, as materials cooled from the, this is theory, but the solar nebula uh, distances decreased, some became more rocky, some became more icy, and in this region of the asteroid belt where they lie, Vesta is, is a dry differentiated object shaped by volcanism with a surface that shows signs of resurfacing. Ceres, on the other hand, is a primitive surface containing water-bearing minerals and may possess a weak atmosphere. Studying them with the same complement of instruments on the same spacecraft, they hope to compare the evolutionary path that each took as well as create a picture of the early solar system overall. Uh, data returned from the Dawn spacecraft could provide opportunities for significant breakthroughs in our knowledge of how the solar system formed. Okay, so that's a whole bunch of, of what's interesting about it. Uh, Dawn has some visible light cameras. Uh, they call them framing cameras. They look at it in visible and infrared. They've also got a gamma ray and a neutron spectrometer. They're doing radio and optical navigation. And all of these things together with the uh, the scientists and engineers that know how to to take you know, what to me seems to be very uh, data that would be difficult to put together, they're going to come up with the, uh, the exact mass and the gravity and some of the materials that are present on these asteroids. Let me tell you about some firsts. I had some fun talking about first as we were introducing Atlantis's flight a few shows ago. But uh, one of the things that unique, it's the first mission to Vesta, first mission to Ceres, Dawn is the first spacecraft to orbit two bodies in the solar system. It's the first mission to visit a protoplanet, and their stay at Vesta is the first prolonged visit to a main asteroid or a main belt asteroid. When they arrive at Ceres in February of 2015, it will be the first spacecraft to visit a dwarf planet. Then, in parentheses, I read that New Horizons arrives at Pluto in July of 2015, uh, about five months later. So Dawn gets there first. Uh, Dawn is accomplished. To me, this is incredibly unique. Dawn has accomplished the largest propulsive acceleration of any spacecraft thanks to its ion engines. It's re increased its velocity by 14,300 miles per hour 
by May, which is now two months ago at the start of its approach to Vesta. And when its solar panels are extended, Dawn has the longest wingspan of any NASA interplanetary mission launched so far. When Juno is launched later this year, which is going to be in August, Juno will have uh, a wider span of solar array by about one foot. Um, talking about the asteroid belt, I'm not going to go through a lot of it, but uh, if you imagine a, uh, a large area full of lots of rocks and debris, there's going to be collisions, and some of the collisions result in pieces that come off and eventually some head towards Earth. And there's an estimate that 5% of all meteorites on Earth are thought to have come from Vesta. And I can't help but think of the meteorite men when we've talked to them. Yeah, exactly. That really, that really makes their excitement something that I can grasp a little closer as to why they're excited about finding, you know, the, the hunks of, of the solar system that we find here on Earth. Uh, back to Vesta. Vesta is uh, nearly spheroid with a massive chunk out of the South Pole. It rotates every five hours, 20 minutes. It has a layered structure of core, mantle, and crust. And Vesta is about the length of Arizona. They believe it has a surface of basaltic rock, frozen lava, which oozed out of their presumably hot interior shortly after its formation four and a half billion years ago, just the other day. And it's remained largely intact ever since. They believe it's the oldest known surface in the solar system, and its small size ensured that it cooled down quickly, shutting down the resurfacing process for longer that, that happened for longer times on larger bodies. It has the, uh, the impact crater on the South Pole that I referred to. It's a crater that's 285 miles across and 8 miles deep. And that blast, when that impact occurred, generated 200,000 cubic miles of rock that went out into space. And uh, as I said, hundreds of meteorites found on Earth are believed to have come from this single ancient crash in deep, deep space. Uh, Vesta, as it goes into, I mean, uh, dawn, as it goes into orbit around Vesta, actually makes a slow spiraling approach. And at different points, it uses its ion thrusters to establish a, you know, a fixed orbit. And, uh, oh, back, uh, backing up just a little bit, it got a Mars gravity assist came within 341 miles of Mars, and it picked up 5,800 miles an hour of, of velocity increase by slingshotting around Mars. Uh, it's interesting that they took the advantage of their close approach to Mars to take their framing cameras, their gamma ray and neutron detectors, and also to look at Mars with it. That allowed them to calibrate those instruments in a way because Mars has also been observed by other instruments on other spacecraft. So... I mentioned uh, going into orbit, they have a survey orbit that's the start. It's at 1,700 miles is the distance that it'll be. Since Vesta is spinning at, five point, at a 5.34 hour rotation rate, they'll have a view of every part of the, sun, of the lit surface during the period of their, uh, of their orbits. They'll be looking at it in different wavelengths, in ultraviolet, visible, infrared, and everybody thinks Hubble's the hot shot. From their survey orbit, they're going to get uh, images that are going to be 150 times sharper than the best images so far from Hubble looking at Vesta. The survey phase uh, lasts about 20 days. Then they go to a closer orbit. They, they spiral in 
to a 420-mile orbit, a high-altitude mapping orbit, and they stay there for a time of about 30 days, and then they uh, will start going closer. They'll go down to a low-altitude mapping orbit. Uh, at that point, they'll be revolving. On, they're on a polar orbit. They'll be going around Vesta about every four hours. They'll be 110 miles up. They'll spend about 10 weeks there. And I think one of the interesting little tidbits, a little hard for me to visualize this, but because of the, uh, the rotation of the planet below them and the orbit of the spacecraft, they will cover the entire surface, and also they allows it, the spacecraft to stay in sunlight virtually the whole time. Now, let's see. Last off, they, when they're getting ready to leave, they spiral back out to a high-altitude mapping orbit again. And the interesting thing about this is that it's happening during a different, uh, let's call it a season, that Vesta will be in because during that time it will have rotated from the start of all this a considerable distance around the sun and the tilt of the planet and its rotation relative to uh, where the spacecraft will be on the high altitude mapping orbit too will get them to see a different sunlit perspective of the surface. So it may allow them to pick out some different surface features and get a little better view and some, and some more readings on things. And then it goes to, uh, to Ceres. In series, it'll be in orbit for about five months. Right. The end of its mission in series, they will uh, put it in a uh, what they refer to as a quarantine orbit that they expect to last for about half a century. And that keeps it in orbit and uh, keeps them from possible contamination of the surface of series. And that's a snapshot. Hey Mark, you said this thing is going to be kept in a in a uh, a specific orbit after after its two missions are over. We've seen spacecraft leveraged for other things and and other um, other possibilities. Is it possible that perhaps uh, Dawn may be you know called upon again um, to go ahead and examine something that might be out there? You know, I mean we've seen that we've seen the. I'm thinking that the deep impact uh, craft and and um, and the epoxy missions. I mean, those that that particular spacecraft was used for for two things, and I'm just wondering if if the possibility looms that maybe Dawn might 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 uh, might be leveraged again. Yeah, I kind of wonder about that. But uh, in the couple years that it's going to be back on cruise, going to series, it'll probably use up a great deal of the remaining propellant. Oh, and by the way. They're going to have, I, I want to mention this, the uh, ion thrusters. Right. <laughs> Total thrust time up until uh, the point we're at now is going to be around 979 days of continuous, well, not continuous, but it's on, it's pulsed on and off during the off phases. They can uh, they can turn the spacecraft for communications with Earth. They can do troubleshooting. They can do instrument alignment, and then the rest of the time they're back on. So the thrusters are going to be uh, accumulating 979 days to date of thrust time, and they expect over 2,000 days of thrust through the totality of the mission. This is going to surpass Deep Space One, another satellite record of 678 days of ion propulsion by a long shot. Uh, 
it's it's interesting. I wish I understood some of this better, the the rocket science part, but uh, it it says that the amount of force exerted by one of the thrusters is about the same as involved in holding a piece of notebook paper in your hand. That's amazing. Now you don't, this is why I wanted to talk about this because we're getting to the the fun geeky stuff. You don't want to use ion propulsion to get on the freeway at maximum throttle. It takes Dawn's system four days to accelerate from zero to 60 miles per hour. That's zero to 60 in four days, boys and girls. (laughs) So, you know, it's no barn burner, but the fact that it's got the record for total propulsive increase in speed, you know, hey, not bad, not bad. And it also says, as small as this sounds, the total change in velocity would be comparable to the push provided by the Delta II rocket that carried it into space, all nine solid fuel boosters, plus Delta's first, second, and third stages. Wow. So, you know, the little engine that could. Yeah, indeed. Um, And to think this whole thing was nearly canceled. Uh, Back in uh, March of uh, 2006, uh, a decision was passed uh, to cancel the the entire mission before it even started. Um, And the whole reason was due to uh, the possibility that the, the, there might have been some sort of flaws in the in the ion engine, or there were some issues with with the ion engine, and and that were just insurmountable. They th- or was thought to be insurmountable, and uh, it, the idea was, well, we've we've spent so much money on this, let let's just cancel it. Um, the the interesting thing about that was that the spacecraft was built. I mean, the dawn was pretty much assembled. It was ready to go. It was it was all set to be uh, processed and and put on board a booster, and then all of a sudden we get the message that the plug is being pulled. Well, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory went ahead and appealed the cancellation decision uh, through uh, the the then NASA administrator's office, who was Michael Michael Griffin. And uh, I'm looking at um, a PDF right now of the decision letter to uh, go ahead and reinstate Dawn. And it says here that, quote, uh, the most significant technical concerns, um, which was the composite fuel tank qualification, the ion propulsion power unit test failures, and the spacecraft structural design margins have been resolved or a credible path exists. Um and that was really, really the big deal. Um, and because of this, apparently there were some project cost overruns. And uh, the letter basically states that the projected cost overruns is in the range of 15 to 20 percent. Um, but the cost uncertainty had been reduced through uh, through all kinds of other other things that they were doing at the time. And um, uh, it, it was just useless to go ahead and cancel the space, the, the whole the spacecraft and its mission, when 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 the vehicle was just about assembled. I mean, they were talking about gutting the spacecraft and using the the the, the parts for other for possibly other missions. Um, and I am glad that Dawn has is, is out there now and it's flying and it, and I can't wait to see the the great science that it's about to do. 
Um, I'm just going to go ahead and send one little correction, though. I, who, uh, somebody out there on Twitter, and I forget who exactly who it was, tweeted that uh, this was going to be the first time that a, a spacecraft would ever orbit an asteroid. I kind of um, took some difference to that. There were other spacecraft that had done that, most recently uh, the Japanese uh, Hayabusa spacecraft. But uh, Dawn will deliver some really good science and some and a really good uh, good punch to understanding asteroids and possibly as a precursor to going there ourselves at some point. So uh, I, I'm really, really excited to see what uh, what science Dawn is able to uh, to deliver. That That's going to be a very interesting mission and not just the Vesta part of it, but as it continues on over the next couple of years. Indeed. So while we're talking about satellites, if we can go back a little bit to STS-135, there was one thing that we didn't mention, and that was the final ever satellite launched from the space shuttle. And Mark, which satellite was that? Ah, that would be the PicoSat. About uh, 5 inches by 5 inches by 10 inches, weighs 3.7 kilograms, and it's installed on a launcher in the payload bay that on flight day 12, it will be set free. And it's uh, an interesting, it's got some DOD experiments during their lifetime on orbit. Uh, they're going to be doing some tracking, they're going to be evaluating performance of solar cells on the PicoSat. Uh, it has GPS for time and position information. And also, uh, one of the interesting things, it's got some solid rocket motors that uh, it, as the orbit uh, you know, slowly decays for about a month, at one point they'll go ahead and fire these solid rocket motors that will provide a very small amount of thrust to extend the orbital lifetime by an additional two months. So it's, uh, it's got a, a, looks like about a three-month planned uh, time in orbit where it'll be doing some experiments that have been deemed worth doing. And like you said, the final satellite deployment, which is where, if you think back to the many, many, many of the early uh, missions of the program, that's where the shuttle was uh, kind of, I guess, made fun of because, oh, yeah, okay, you can take a satellite up and uh, deploy it from the payload bay. Well, yeah, that's really pretty unique and, and uh, a mission that couldn't be done the same way it was done as the shuttle has done it so many times. And here we wind up with a PicoSat as their final hurrah. It's interesting, too, that at least uh, the shuttle is, is going ahead and is doing something it was, again, designed to do, which is to go ahead and deliver deliver uh, deliver satellites. Again, the PicoSat is a small, small satellite, I believe, um, but it uh, will essentially be um, – the last satellite to be delivered ever by a space shuttle. So it's, you know, again, the end of an era. By the way, Mark, what is the purpose of this PicoSat? Can you tell us all about what it's going to do? <laughs> I think Mark could, but uh, he'd have to go ahead and shoot you first. This is, uh, I believe, a, a, a DOD um, or Department of Defense satellite, correct? <laughs> It is, in fact, a Department of Defense satellite, so that's why I figured I'd say that. And, you know, I can't find my notes. I know they covered it in the payload beef briefing uh, for STS-135, but gosh darn, I can't find those notes. I guess they self-destructed on me. Oh, darn. <laughs> the interesting thing is that, that most people don't realize is that the shuttle payload bay, the specs of it, were laid out by the Department of Defense. 
so that's that they correct. Get their payloads up there. That's correct, and that's also one of the reasons why the vehicle is as big as it is. It's because uh, it, it needs. It was uh, required to go ahead and and be set up so it could deliver uh, uh, Department of Defense cargo and uh, Department of Defense satellites. So that that's one of the reasons why the orbiter is the orbiter is as big as it is because uh, a decision was made early on in the night, uh, and here's a little bit of a hist- history. T- uh, uh, session for for everybody. Decision was made early on in the program that um, we were going to get rid of all of our expendable launch vehicles and use the shuttle alone for delivering um, satellites and and so on. Uh, that decision turned out to be a problematic one after STS fifty one L Challenger, and uh, that a decision was uh, made to go ahead and continue use of uh, expendable launch vehicles. Okay, Sawyer, you talked me into it. I'm, I'm going to buckle under the pressure. There is one thing that to me is even more exciting than uh, all the rest of this about the PicoSat. When it's uh, deployed at a uh, relatively low altitude, about it says less than 360 kilometers, uh, that multiple onboard megapixel cameras will image Atlantis as the satellite departs thus supplying the last in-orbit photos of NASA's workhorse human space transportation system for the last few decades. Wow. Smile. Who needs the Soyuz when you got that? (laughs) Pictures, pictures. We get pictures. (laughs) If that's what we get to remember the shuttle, that's pretty good. Now, going back a little bit to what we were talking about before, how there was one satellite, the Dawn satellite, was almost canceled, but was saved. Let's see if the same thing can happen with another satellite that is currently up for cancellation, and that is the acclaimed follower of the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. And it, in the new NASA budget, which we actually read at the Kennedy Space Center press site on July 6th, which actually scraps the program. Yeah, Sawyer, we were were kind of busy uh, covering the launch of STS-135 when this news broke. Uh, It broke last week on uh, the... um, uh, on on the impending cancellation of the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. I am going to read directly. I'm looking at a uh, a NASA. I'm sorry, a, a SpaceRef uh, article here, which basically re uh, restates uh, what the uh, the budget entry says here on the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. And I'll read directly from here. Uh, again, this is the decision to cancel it. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, Independent Comprehensive Review Panel revealed chronic and deeply rooted management problems in the JWST project. These issues led to the project cost being underestimated by as much as $1,400,000,000 relative to the most recent baseline, and the budget could continue to rise depending on the final launch date determination. Although the uh, James Webb Space Telescope is a particularly serious example, 
Significant cost overruns are commonplace at NASA, and the committee believes that the underlying causes will never be fully addressed if Congress does not establish clear consequences for failing to meet budget and schedule expectations. The committee recommendation provides no funding for JWST in fiscal year 2012. The committee believes that this step will ultimately benefit NASA by setting cost discipline examples for other projects and by I'm sorry and by reliving the enormous pressure that the, that JWST is placing on NASA's ability to pursue other science missions. Close quote. Um, that is quite an admonishment from from the House Committee here. Um, the idea, though, too, there's a lot of hardware that has been built for the James Webb Telescope. And if I believe exactly the number that's been floated, and I believe this was quoted on the, uh, the Space News article, was about $1.6 billion to continue the project and to finish it. Um, there are some rumors flying around. This thing should have been launched or has a launch, had a launch date of 2014. Now I'm I'm hearing something like 2020. I've heard as far out as 2023, 2024. So um, again, we're not too sure when this thing is going to fly. And I think Congress is saying, "All right, um, you know, you can't you can't do what you're doing. You have to go ahead and have some discipline here, and and realize that you know this project is eating away at other science missions." So we are going to go ahead, draw a line in the sand, and kill this thing. Is it the right decision? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I still feel that hardware has been built for this thing, and that no clear successor for Hubble is out there except this particular uh, project. Um, grant you, it is. Um, the price tag on it has been enormous to, for the U.S. taxpayer, but you know, to abandon ship now, I don't know if it's the right call because we do not have an equivalent project out there that would replace this. So um, I, I'm not too sure killing it's the right call at all. The other thing too in in the budget that I'm I'm looking at here, and it is a, a bit of an admonishment. Um, on um, one of uh, NASA's points, and that is for human exploration. Um, and I will I'll, again. I'll read the paragraph. Uh, NASA's stated intention is to pursue a capabilities-based approach to human exploration, which means that the direction of the program will be driven by what technologies are available at a particular time. While this approach may offer some advantages in terms of flexibility, it also lacks the clearly defined goals that have historically driven space exploration achievements. Specific aggressive goals are necessary to both focus the program and to provide a common vision around which the public and political support can be rallied. Consequently, the committee urges NASA to adopt a destination-based approach to exploration that would designate a specific target location, such as the moon, to drive development decisions and timelines going forward. Close quote. Um, all last week, we were kind of told that um, this, this flexibility is the best thing in the world, that 
you know, the old ideas of uh, target-driven missions don't work as proved by Apollo. They're not sustainable. So if we go ahead and, 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 and develop missions as tech, new tech becomes available rather than going ahead and committing to one particular destination, it will be a lot better. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to say that a, that a tech, technologically based approach is good, but I, I think Congress here has a point. The American people have a tendency to rally around a destination. I get questions um, all the time. In fact, I got a lot of questions coming back from the Kennedy Space Center because I was wearing wearing um, one of my NASA shirts, and everybody was, "Oh, you work for them?" No, I don't. I, I, you know, of course, I plug the show a little bit, but um, I was a- asking, uh, I was asked up, down, and all around, uh, "What are we doing? What's next after shuttle?" And I was trying to to come up, you know, I was trying to explain, you know, about the Orion and about uh, the space launch system, which is also we're, we're we're sort of pending an announcement on that. I'm hearing now that that announcement, according to a Space News article from last week, that might actually be pushed back to fall. Um, at least that that's what what Charlie Bolden is saying, uh, NASA administrator. So you know, again, stay tuned. Um, but uh, uh, with all of this this technology and, and we're building all this stuff, but everybody's asking me, yeah, but what are we doing with it? What's the goal? What's what's the underlying, you know, decision here? What are we, what what exactly are we going to do after shuttle? And I'm like, well, you know, stay tuned. So uh, I said, well, right now it's 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 the International Space Station. That's guaranteed. Um, we will have commercial space taxis going there eventually within the next three, you know, two, three, three years. But as far as what NASA wants to do, that's still up in the air right now. So, you know, again, people seem to gravitate toward a destination-driven system rather than a technology-driven system, because again, they they kind of wonder, you know, are, are what are we doing with all this stuff? You know what kind of we're building all of it. Why, and and that basically is the underlying the underlying thought of everybody I've talked to thus far. So I'm not too sure this approach is is going to work, but we'll you know stay tuned. We'll have to see. It'll be great if it does actually come to fruition, especially it being in a different orbital plane as well than Hubble. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that there again there there are several letter writing campaigns going on right now. And if you feel really, really adamant, you know, about either yay or nay on 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 the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, and again, I'm not too sure its namesake would go ahead and and appreciate the fact that, that you know, the, with all the co- cost overruns, I'm not too sure the namesake would appreciate all of that because uh, James Webb was probably one of the the best NASA administrators that 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 the organization's ever had. Um, and cost overruns were just not in his his lexicon. Um, but if you're if you're you're so inclined uh, that if you want to go ahead and, and save save it, let your let your congressperson know, let let your senators know that this is a key project, and you feel feel uh, animate about it. Or if you're on the other side of the spectrum, let them know too. All right, and we are going to end this episode with a preview for a very special episode coming up in the near future, which will be a recap 
of our events that occurred at the STS-135 launch at the press site with the whole team of Talking Space. But on launch day, member of the team of Talking Space, along Gina Hurley and myself, had a great chance to sit down and interview a very special person who was there visiting the Kennedy Space Center for launch. And uh, you'll hear as we had to ask around and people had to tell us how to get how to get to Sesame Street to talk to this guy. But we got to talk with Elmo. And uh, why don't we go ahead and roll the audio clip of our interview with Elmo. Hi, Elmo. Oh, hello. What's your name? My name is Gina. Oh, hello, Miss Gina. Hi. Hey, what's your name? My name is Sawyer. Hello, Mr. Sawyer. How are you, Elmo? <laughs> oh, Elmo's good. Hey, Elmo, can you tell us why you decided to come to launch today? Oh, because this is so cool. Normally, Elmo sees it on TV. But this time, Elmo's here, and Elmo's so excited. <laughs> Elma, what was the best thing that's happened to you while you've been Everything. here at launch? Everything. It's been wonderful. Uh, How about you? You've been here many times before? Only this your year. first. Second time. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Is this your first time, Elma? Yeah, this is Elma's first. Very yeah. cool. So have you met any cool people? Oh, well, um, Elma met um, 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 an astronaut, um, Mr. Wheelock. And how was he? Oh, he was cool. He said he, he kind of breaks things a lot. We all do. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> so, Elmo, when you return to Sesame Street, what are you going to tell the kids at Sesame Street about being here at lunch? Oh, the Elmo had a wonderful time, and everyone was so cool. Excellent. Enjoy the launch today, Elmo. Okay, you too, and you too. Thank you, Elmo. <laughs> With that, I have to say my childhood was fulfilled. <laughs> That was too much, Sawyer. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh man, how can you not laugh at that? That was that was great. And wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually see that interview too? Oh yeah, it would be. Um, do you um, have any plans to do that, Sawyer? I think I do. I think there's going to be a video in the show notes of this episode, All and right. we will also post a link to it on our Twitter account as it comes out, and we'll we'll spread the word about it. You'll be able to see it. Because we had somebody who was kind enough to film it for us. Her name was Jen Vargas. And, uh, Jean, what's the company which she's a part of? Uh, Jen Vargas's company is uh, Purple Bunny Productions. And we are very, very grateful to those folks and, uh, and to Jen to going, going ahead and letting us uh, use their footage. So uh, hats off to both Jen Vargas and Purple Bunny Productions. And also to the people at NASA who we spoke with there who were part of actually – the NASA Educational Department and their education campaign, and they actually squoze us in. There really wasn't time for us, but they said, you know what? You know, I talked to them a little bit. They're like, you guys want to do it? We're like, sure. They're like, all right, we'll give you five minutes, and we only did it in three, but we made it work, and we had an amazing interview and an amazing time with Elmo, and it was a shock to see him there, but it, it was great. But it was really a fun interview. There were a couple other people that got to interview him, too. And he ran off to do a CBS interview with us. Yep, he, he trotted off frame and then just kept going all the way down the press side. <laughs> just like you'd see him do on Sesame Street. But when he put his head on my shoulder, uh, my childhood was just entirely fulfilled at that moment. So right, how's right. that for a sneak peek of what's going to be on our next show? <laughs> Indeed. So thank you to Elmo for doing the interview and especially thank you, Jen Vargas, for filming that for us. And again... Check around the website. You'll see it. It was a fun, fun, fun interview. 
So the interview was great. But one thing that we actually just realized a couple of minutes ago after discussing this was uh, that he was talking about Mr. Wheelock, Doug Wheelock, who is an astronaut who we spoke with down there. Uh, he actually made a very interesting tweet about what he will be doing shortly, right? That's correct, Sawyer. Um, Doug Wheelock uh, fired the following uh, piece of information. Uh, quote, I salute you, my friends. Duty calls, and I must fade off the Twitter grid for a bit. I'll be flying again in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and plan to return home sometime in the fall. If opportunity arises, I'll try to tweet to you from the zone. I won't be able to share details for, for now, but be sure that you will be on my mind and in the memories of our time together, safely stored in my heart. Take care of each other. Be kind and courageous. Stand up for when life's storms come. And reach out your hand to help others who have fallen. Clear mind, open heart, praying for p- peace. Wheels. So uh, Doug Wheelock is is going to serve his country again, and and this time he will be doing so in in, in the green zone in Iraq. And um, we wish him safe safe travels and a and a quick uh, journey home. Um, uh, we hope uh, we and we hope uh, uh, his uh, his tour is. Uh, without incident and we want him back here as soon as possible so take care Doug we'll, we'll, we'll miss you out there remember his Twitter account is astro underscore wheels now before we go we do have a couple of thank yous that we would like to add to tonight's episode uh, Gene if you'd like to take yeah. those yeah, sure. Sorry, thanks. Um, surprisingly enough, uh, Jenny Jardin and uh, her uh, and the site uh, Boing Boing gave us a, a really nice salute, and Sawyer gave you a nice little write up uh, on there. So, I want to thank uh, thank uh, her and uh, thank uh, Boing Boing for being so kind to us. Um, you guys rock, and Jenny, uh, I'm very familiar with uh, Jenny Jardin and her work, uh, not only on Boing Boing, but uh, also with uh, as an occasional panelist on uh, This Week in Tech or 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 the Twit Network, as it's called, the uh, Leo, uh, Leo Reports Group. So again, thanks. And also uh, coming up, uh, I I promise to go ahead and and put a plug in for this because um, I was talking with some of the uh, the organizers about it. Um, at the uh, the infamous endless barbecue, uh, there's a, uh, a bit of a, an interesting little conference coming up um, in the uh, uh, California area. Just uh, I believe this is being put on uh, by the Ames Research Center, uh, New Space 2011. Uh, the next big thing it will take place uh, July 28th and through through the 30th. It is being put on by the Space Frontier Foundation, and if you want to learn a little bit more about it, the website is um, newspace2011.spacefrontier.org. So, if, uh, again, if you're in the Bay Area and so inclined, or even if, if you're somewhere in, somewhere around and want to go ahead and learn more about it and maybe even attend, please, by all means, take a look at the site and, and, uh, and enjoy. <laughs> The funny thing is, I didn't even know that interview was an interview. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think that will bring this episode to its conclusion. And uh, don't miss the next episode that will be out. will actually be the live launch coverage if you missed it. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you, Gene McCulka. Yeah, always a pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks so much. And thank you as well, Mark Rannerman. Good to be here. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us and listening, 
And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are, and go Atlantis. Thank you.